Welcome back to Entertainment Geekly. I am senior writer Darren Franich. I'm putting on my biological suit. I'm stepping through the hole in the ceiling. I'm going into, what could it be? An alternate universe? A hellscape? Who knows? Oh no, I'm being pulled in away from Matthew Bodine. Is it a monster? Is it a Cronenberg? Is it an E.T.? No, it's E.W.'s Jeff Jensen. <laughs> Welcome to my upside down world. <laughs> Welcome to the like Dark Link universe, I guess. Uh, Jeff, we are talking summer TV this week. The shows that we are catching up on, the shows that have surprised us, the things you recommend. Mr. Robot will come up because it has to. Um, <laughs> first of all, though, we wanted to check in on Stranger Things. We talked about this a bit when it debuted. You had watched the entire season and had good things to say about it generally. I had only watched the first two episodes. I had slightly less good, but still... Still, I liked a lot about the show. I wasn't ready to jump right in. My girlfriend and I are now halfway through the first season. Things that I like about it, I still very much like about it. The music and the look of it and all of that stuff, it continues to win me over. But what we really want to talk about a bit, Jeff, is that since we talked about it, this show, I think it's fair to say, has become, if not the phenomenon, then certainly a phenomenon of the summer. Um, it feels like it has had a big effect. The character Barb, in particular, seems to have become a, a sort of particular mascot for summer television. It seems as if the, the world around Stranger Things has become very focused on Stranger Things, which I find kind of interesting. We're a few weeks on from you watching it. How do you feel kind of looking back on it, Jeff? I feel like my feelings about it haven't really changed in the review that I gave for the magazine. I, I gave it a B. I was very entertained by it. It got off to a strong start, got a little sluggish, rallied around the middle, barreled toward an end. Then I thought the end was just okay. Lots of unresolved stuff, lots of cliffhangers that I didn't necessarily think were, were, were necessary. The nostalgia appealed to me, but what I questioned in myself was... Is this really just all nostalgia for me? Is this really good on its own? And if anyone who like didn't have that kind of nostalgic relationship to the past, would they get into it? So I had a lot of questions about it. I questioned my own appreciation of it. I, I had to be honest, I liked it. I didn't think it was great, but I, I liked it. And then, like I said, in terms of recommending it to people, I had that question. Do you need the nostalgic frame of reference? And for the, so, so consider me surprised to see the culture seemingly, at least as, as manifest by the internet and social media, really responding to it. Here's what we've learned, Jeff. You don't need to have been living in the 80s to be deeply nostalgic for the 80s. Apparently, I right, mean, yeah. and, and this is something that we've been building to for a while. And Because I remember, Jeff, when I talked to you about the show, it was already clear to me the 80s homagerie is clear right from the very beginning of the show. Having seen a couple episodes deeper into the season, it's become clear to me that more than homage, this is a, a celebration in some respects of a lot of things that people hold very dear about the 1980s. You know, whether it is the sort of very almost fetishistic attention to detail in terms of the technology, in terms of the, just the look of the, of the houses, but even more so it feels like for many years now, there's been this theme building. And I kind of really, I've always kind of pointed back to Grand Theft Auto Vice City as my first indication of it. But like, I think especially in the last few years, there's been this thing building of 80s nostalgia moving past 
people who lived in the 80s feeling nostalgic for it into a generation like myself. I was very, very young when the 80s were around and recall very little of it into people even younger than me. And it seems like with Stranger Things, like the 80s is kind of the new 50s now. What I mean by that is this sort of free-floating idea of a time that is still kind of close, but everything is different. You know what Stranger Things is? It's it's our happy days. I know that Happy Days is a sitcom. It is a show that evokes another time in which we, we are now sentimentalizing or romanticizing and nostalgia for. Um, but it's also entertaining us. To me, this has been the difficult thing to wrap my head around is, you know, our happy days would not be a sitcom filled with kind of Archie Archie Andrews looking kids. No, our happy days would be this sort of Steven Spielberg via E.T. mixed with John Carpenter via Halloween and the thing. Like, Like that is sort of that whole tone imbues this show in a way that, you know, I think a lot of people do miss that kind of thing. And again, you know, we talked about this in an earlier episode. I mean, like, surely J.J. Abrams and his era of filmmakers feel nostalgic for that, and that's what leads to Super 8 and stuff like that. The fact that now there's a big audience for that nostalgia, that is certainly something that I I was not expecting, necessarily. And I think as we may have spoken about in our previous podcast on this, it's a response to the kind of summer movie season that we have. And it, it, it's a wish fulfillment on, on some part of the audience of the kinds of things that they wish that Hollywood would be giving us during the summer that they're not giving us now. A, a reaction against quickly cut, fast-paced explosions everywhere, spectacle. But something a little more patient, something a little bit more human, something that mixes wonder with like some kind of like gritty suburban life horror. This is a show about like kind of regular people and Winona Ryder is one of the most, and I mean this is a compliment to her, she's playing one of the most regular people on television right now. Just someone who is like struggling with a lot of things even before her son goes missing and everything kind of goes to hell around her. And some of the things about the show that are beginning to bug me are like, the look of it is so lovely and very colorful and you know there are those great moments like when she's kind of communicating with her son and and he's communicating entirely through the lights whenever the faceless thing appears (laughs) it is just such a it, it is similar in a way to what I felt about Super 8, and this gets into, I think, a little bit of the the flimsiness of any kind of artisanal movie reality is when there is something that just totally violates that. And so this weird kind of digital, like, monster thing. Sure. When that appears, I'm always kind of like, that kind of pulls me out. Whereas, conversely, when they do stuff that, to me, is very in keeping with the sort of Spielberginess, like the guy who goes into the hole in the wall, and you you know, you don't see what happens to him, but you see the scientists on this side and what's happening, you know, that, that feels very kind of we're we're shooting around with a shark right now which yeah. i which i appreciate and that's good filmmaking on the part of the directors the duffer brothers and sean levy that's the cleverness that actually exudes from those 80s movies and not just this sort of nostalgic recreation of them yeah you mentioned winona ryder i love that winona ryder did this show i think that she does this part great justice I think that, though, her character in particular, for me, does express one of the flaws of the thing. I I think it could easily be five or six episodes. It doesn't need to be eight. Um, Her character quickly ramps up to a single tone, which is this sort of like out-of-her-mind panic about what happened to her son. And then she stays there for really seven episodes until you get to the end of the the season and she finally gets to do something about it. And so I kind of, as much as I like her, 
and I like that she's in this show, and I think that she's doing well with the role. I think the role wears me out, and for me ends up kind of being emblematic of what what disappoints me about the series. And I would other say one other thing is that I, I do like the filmmaking, I do like the homages, and I and I like ultimately their approach to entertaining us. But I did find that the early kind of capture your imagination moments to not quite capture my imagination. Like everyone's latching on to the, the Christmas light communication thing. That That is cool, but wasn't cool enough for me. Um, similarly, when she kind of sees like her son in the membrane of the wall and like trying yeah. to get out. Well, the moment that really finally said, okay, that's creepy and cool. And I felt like it got better from that moment on for me was when the sheriff goes and cuts open the body and then finds out that it's a a stuffed corpse. That That whole thing was well staged and kind of creepy. And it was just like, you knew that when he cut open the kid that what you were going to see was, it was probably going to like freak you out. So to see that it was just cotton and and stuffing is like pretty awesome. The beginning of episode three which is Barb is struggling out of what seems to be the sort of netherverse version of the pool. And while she is struggling upstairs, uh, the daughter, I'm forgetting her name, is about to lose her virginity to uh, the wannabe Billy Zabka kid. And and it's all set to waiting for a girl like you. (laughs) And what I love about that is, you know, that's just a fun scene, and I am an easy sucker for 80s musical cues. But what I also liked was... There was something that there was a real story being told there, and even just in my limited kind of understanding of all those characters' relationships, you know, you have this tremendous sense of Barb and the, the what she feels for the girl, and you know, what, whether that is a kind of romantic love, whether it is more just kind of like you know, don't leave me behind, go hang yeah. out with these other people, and the dramatization of that in that moment with Barb finally left, like holding on to the side of the pool as you know, her friend is sort of basically leaving her behind. I just, that was a whole story that went so far beyond just the freakiness of it, as freaky as it was. That, you, you have that, now, that's the stuff that I really appreciate in the show. And you, you conceptualizing it and explaining it to me like that, you've made me appreciate that a whole lot more than I think I actually did when I first watched it. Because to be honest with you, that stuff when I first experienced it was pretty tedious. Right, because a lot of it does just seem like it's sort of 80s horror homagery in right. a way, yeah. But kind of like that scene as speaking to all the barbs out there. Yes. And like your relationship even to a song like Waiting for a Girl Like You because you realize that for most of us, we are not the girl or boy that anyone is waiting before we're on the outside of that song it's always about someone else we know and so that we have a barb relationship to that song one of the things i do like about that and we've complained about this before with streaming shows that air all at once you don't get that great thing that television used to give you which was and my go-to with this is always lost like whoa like we didn't know michael emerson was gonna be so awesome oh yeah we're making the show about him now like i do like that i'm glad that you brought in the whole lost thing too because this is a show that I would have loved to be watching with an audience week to week and read recaps, identifying and deconstructing all of its influences. Yeah. 
but I wish that we were undertaking that project together. This is an example of a show where I wish that we had like an ongoing week-to-week cultural conversation uh, about it. I wish the show aired on ABC or a broadcast network. There's no reason why it can't. Yeah. If Lost were to air now as like an eight-episode Netflix show, I'd love to know what the conversation about it would be like. Because really, I mean, to me, like... Hurley, to me, was the barb of Lost, which meant that he was a very endearing character who, whenever he kind of took over the lead, would usually produce an episode that was not that great, in, in my own opinion. I mean, I, I loved Hurley as a character, but a Hurley-centric episode was not necessarily a sign of, like, a great time ahead. And I wonder if now, like, <laughs> after everyone, like, binges eight episodes, they'd be like, Hurley's the best! Uh-huh. Like, you know, he's he's such a standout. Well, but... like, in this week's Entertainment Weekly, I wrote about re-watching Lost with my son, the Hurley episodes are his favorite. Trisha Tanaka is dead. I saw that. I love is it. his favorite episode ever. That. Maybe it speaks to a different way of watching because for right. me, very often, the frustration with those episodes were like, oh, like I waited a whole week for this. I waited a whole like, and I, I wonder if for him it was more like this is a delightful change. If Lost was case. a streaming show and all the seasons were available at once, there would be no Doc Jensen. And I was reflecting on this recently as I'm continuing to obsess and be nutty and stupid about Mr. Robot which is that so much of the theory is based on following a story that's not yet complete so you you get this download of information you experience it you latch on to the clear clues you overthink and project everything you wonder where it's all going to go and in that nebulousness and in in experiencing a show like that that's where all the crazy thoughts come from and that's Mm -hmm. where all the theory making comes from and oftentimes, you know, we're theorizing and the theorizing is also kind of about projecting where the season is going. So if you had like eight episodes or 10 episodes or even 20 episodes of Lost to Download, I would just, instead of theorizing, I would just watch. You brought up two things there, Jeff. You brought up alternate realities and you brought up Mr. Robot. And there was a moment in this week's episode of Mr. Robot where the character White Rose in her under, I guess, secret identity capacity or not secret identity, whatever identity you want to you call it, as the minister of security, of cybersecurity? Internal security or something like that, um, yeah. Is speaking to Grace Gummer and mentions, is there an alternate reality where the 5-9 hit didn't happen? People are theorizing about that. And I thought to myself, like, oh boy, like that's that's the first five pages already written of Jeff's <laughs> Mr. Robot. That <laughs> contemplation moves me deeply, <laughs> said White Rose. Yeah, I definitely jumped up and down because if you suffered through my recap of last week's Mr. Robot, you know that I seized upon the name of this FBI surveillance program that F Society is compl- is very worried about called Codename Berenstain. And if you know anything about seemingly a reference to the Berenstain Bears, the famous children's book series, but if you do some research on the internet, you'll find out that there is a very well-traveled, crazy bit of theory that kind of plays with the fact that most people remember that the name of that book series is like the Bernstein Bears, (laughs) but it's not. It's spelled completely differently. So a couple years ago, some guy came up with this crazy 
like conjecture that the reason why we remember it as Bernstein bears instead of correctly as Berenstain bears is that sometime in the past few years, our reality was hijacked by an alternate reality where everyone who remembers it as Bernstein bears got pushed into another alternate reality <laughs> and everyone who correctly remembers it as Berenstain bears kind of like I got pushed to another reality. So anyway, in my recap last week, I kind of went on and on about like, is this storytelling like playing with the idea of like alternate realities? So to hear White Rose indulge alternate reality theory, I was like, oh, I'm on to something. Well, I continue to love the show. I could not tell you what is happening on it half the time. I like that scene for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, because at a moment when the main character of the show is secluded in a very strange story that, that I'm enjoying, but I understand the frustrations with what's happening with Elliot. While that has been happening, Grace Gummer has quickly become one of my favorite performers on the show, and her interaction with the man who is, in fact, White Rose was even more interesting. I also like that. That was, a, that was the best storyline of that episode. That was the best storyline of that episode, and had such a punchline, which I'll get to in, in a second. But... I've also been noticing around the background, because I've been going back and rewatching the stuff playing on television in the background of the of the show is very interesting. Very often in the first couple episodes, it was something related to the 5-9 hack, and it was Elliot kind of watching the fruits of his labors. But occasionally it'll be other things. At one point, it was Jeb Bush, apparently on his presidential campaign. This past episode, it was a reference to gay marriage becoming legal. Becoming That's right. legal in the Supreme Court case, which was last June. Right. And maybe I'm just, you know, maybe this is just a bit of kind of, kind of cool backdrop because Sam Esmail wants to kind of just, you know, very remind you that this is still set in a specific time. It feels to me like there's a purpose to it. This scene setting that reminds you that even though we, in our actual reality, we have moved on from the summer of 2015 when the show started, this show is still there. And I, I find that really tantalizing only because... This show is now also jumping deep into, you know, now we're in China and we're dealing with the Chinese government. And, and there seems to be the possibility of greater divergence at some point. I have no idea if that's what he's going yeah. for ultimately. But I find that fascinating and fascinating that he now has characters talking about that very idea. <laughs> right. And to be clear, this indulgence of alternate reality theory or parallel world thinking, it doesn't need to be literally true. We don't need to be building to some kind of sci-fi idea that we are actually dealing with like quantum physics and many possible worlds and all this kind of stuff. The show is about alternate realities. I mean, like Elliot experiences an alternate reality within himself. He, he's either Mr. Robot or he's Elliot. And I think that thematically the idea of alternate realities plays out all over the place but not necessarily in the quantum physics thing. And I think that White Rose slash Minister Zhang kind of ruminating on the idea of parallel lives, how things could be different, is very poignant given what is clearly his yearning, you yeah. know, is, is to be someone different than he is. What I think I find really interesting about, about Mr. Robot this season is it seems to be willfully betraying what I think some people thought the show was supposed to be. I don't mean betraying necessarily in a negative way, but right up until the end of season one, the show starts and you see it being advertised and you think, oh, this is like a hacker show on USA. I, I kind of know what that means. You watch it, you say, oh, this is a different kind of thing. Through to the end, though, it was still fundamentally a show about a hacker who worked at a company and, you know, it was set in a, a reasonably 
close facsimile of what we know to be reality and on a very ground level. This is now a show where we've just seen the FBI go on an official trip to China and interact with major upper levels of the Chinese government and then, like, in what is my favorite shot of the season so far, be horrifically and violently attacked. And that is, that's interesting, but it is, it is very different from what the show was last year. How, how did you kind of feel about how all of that played out in, in, in the episode? Well, it definitely was a jolt, you know, and I don't know necessarily how to uh, process it at this point. Um, I, I think that there is a popular conjecture out there, which I can't really disagree with, is that is that now some game is being run on Dom and it began with White Rose's seduction and bonding with her in the home. And now it probably has extended to this attack on them. And my guess is that attack serves some kind of big picture thing of like, not necessarily stopping her investigation, but playing with her somehow. Yes, yes. And, and th- my th- guess th- is that she will survive that attack. And that is by design. Well, and I guess, you know, this gets back to what interests me about the show is I still love it so much on a moment-to-moment basis. And, like, that shot in particular, which, again, yes. is, is the kind of thing you don't often see on television, which, which to me, this is a word that's weird to throw around, it feels tourist in the sense that, like... Sam Esmail wrote this scene and directed it and had a very specific thing in mind. This is not what you would usually get in even the best TV shows where there is back and forth between various, often quite talented, creative people. This is him being like, I know exactly how I want this shot to play out. And just even like that image of after she shot the guy in the leg, she goes back to reload and then it kind of, you know, time crisis is back out to shoot him again, just long enough to see the masked man put a bullet in his own head. That is the craziest thing I've seen on television this Right. Well, the blocking of that scene, the the violence that plays out in that moment in particular was definitely really impressive. My favorite part of how impressive that shot is, is that it's a one take shot that does not draw attention to itself. It's it's an impressive piece of filmmaking and, and blocking and staging and all that, but also in a way that like, it's even cooler than you think it is, yes, basically. Yes, Well, because, and to your point exactly, like, you know, so often when you have a single take shot, you know, and like, I feel like in movies it became really vogue like, a few years ago, the emphasis is on, like, look at all the stuff that's happening in this shot. Like, and most famously, I think it was Atonement, where there was that one shot that was just, you know, look at all these people, look at all these places they're going. And yeah, here actually, I mean, it was almost just kind of like, ah, oh, it's like a steady shot of them kind of walking down the stairs, and then, you know, there's not a whole lot of activity, and even when the violence starts, you are not kind of seeing, it's not like the raid where there's like five levels of stuff happening. No, you're kind of with her the whole time. So I, I don't, think, that, that I don't think the camera moves that much. I mean, it's also a function of that set. I mean, it seems like the camera is largely parked in one place. It's able to look up a set of stairs to like track her going down. And then she walks up to a table that is right basically in front of the camera and then the violence breaks out. In a series full of really ostentatious, showy filmmaking, it's one of the most impressive shots of the year by being impressive but not calling attention yeah, to itself. Yeah, I like watching Sam S. Mayo kind of improve himself as a director.
Jeff, uh, I want to talk a bit about a show that you've seen, I have not seen. It sounds like you're enjoying it. What's the deal with Brain Dead? Brain Dead is, uh, for me, turned into one of the big surprises of the summer. Do you know anything about the premise? Only, I mean, the broad strokes and, and, and what I've read in your writing of it. Uh, we're in D.C., and D.C. is even crazier than it actually is because politicians have been taken over by alien bugs? Yeah, apparently there is this, like, meteor or meteorite that landed in Russia and then found its way to the United States to be studied by scientists in one dark night the meteorite splits open and all of these bugs that look like tiny little ants start crawling out of it and then get out of the facility and now have infiltrated and are spreading all across Washington, D.C. Turns out these alien bugs, at least for what our working theory, is that there's some kind of sentient alien creature <laughs> and they basically take over. They crawl under your ear, they force half of your brain out and they kind of turn you into the most extreme, inhuman version of what you are politically. Mm-hmm. And Just so, like the internet. <laughs> yes, exactly, right? And they are targeting Washington, D.C. And the series follows some staffers that work on Capitol Hill, that work for senators on either side of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats that are currently locked in this gridlock over budget and all sorts of political issues. Well, now the aliens are taking over them and making them even more extreme and ridiculous than they are. It ends up kind of being an allegory, not so much, I think, for for government. Yes, for government, for gridlock government, but really about the hysterical way that we like talk to each other or at each other. It's a it's a great satire about political discourse in the country. And it follows a couple of the staffers that are trying to piece together this mystery of what the heck exactly is going on in our country. Mm-hmm. But it's it's made by the kings who did a good wife. It has that kind of like real like smart zesty sophisticated storytelling thing but it's it's really funny it's really absurd and has the best exploding heads on television so what happens is perfect is that when you had me at exploding heads when the ants like invade your head they either take you over or they blow your head up so the first (laughs) like two or three episodes you could count on just this really great disturbing shot of an exploding head um (laughs) But uh, probably the height of the show occurred last week or two episodes now ago, now by the time people are listening to this, in which the heroine is briefly taken over by ants. And what they end up finding out is her friends end up finding out is that there is a way to get the ants out of your head for a specific window of time. And you have to engage in certain activities, basically art exercising the sexual and artistic parts of your brain. So they overstimulate her with music, they get her drunk, and they get her laid. So so it's like a a sexorcism is executed (laughs) in which she's like screwing wildly in order to get the bugs out of her head. And it, it happened the same week of television as that great opening 10 minutes of Mr. Robot a few weeks ago, where it's a flashback, Darlene comes over and Elliot puts on the mask and lays out the F Society plan. Like that, that 10 minutes of Mr. Robot right up there with that 10 minutes of Brain Dead is like my favorite 10 minutes of the summer it's right incredible. there. Yeah, it's really good. Oh man, what right now is the kind of divide between the satire funny side to the kind of we're investigating the brain bug side of it? I mean, like, to it's do- equally divided. They do a really good job of advancing both, of just like kind of wallowing in the satire. Also uh, having the characters advance this mystery of 
what exactly is happening. It feels like the plot is a little stretched right now. Like, where are we going? Sure. Where are we headed? It sounds like, though, that's not necessarily the main thrust of the show or what makes the show good. But they find ways, like Mr. Robot, to really keep it entertaining amid a, a sort of a protracted, stretched plot. Well, and I, I love, uh, we talked about it earlier this year, but Mary Elizabeth Winstead is one of my favorite performers. And it sounds like, I mean, I, I had in my head that this was sort of her as the sort of heroic figure but it sounds like the show has great kind of comedic uh, oh yeah it's great you know there's some talk among critics right now is like do we have a show on air right now that can speak to or at least capture the absolutely gloomy tunes like state of our political scene right now and then this election so when you see shows try to engage us politically or, or reflect some kind of political reality too often these days I'm finding I'm kind of, you know, it's, there's that little bit of a bust because like no one could have anticipated the moment that we're in. But Brain Dead comes close. I mean, <laughs> right. um, and in terms of its metaphors, but just in terms of its very general like attack of our hysterical but very serious political state. It comes close to giving us some energy that matches the lunacy of our moment and gives us this wonderful respite to laugh at it. This is what interests me to a certain extent, is there was a time a couple of years ago when all of a sudden you had House of Cards and you had Veep. Two kind of dueling visions of Washington, D.C. that lots of people both gravitated to. One of them, of course, is D.C. as this sort of, like, gloriously Machiavellian, you know, Lannistery center of power plays, and, you know, just to a certain extent, you almost kind of hope there are politicians like Kevin Spacey on House of Cards, because that would at least mean that there are politicians who get stuff done. And then the alternative to that, of course, was Veep, which was such a beautifully lacerating vision of the kind of rat race of DC and the way in which, you know, even the most powerful people can be, like, you know, deeply focused on things that are not that important. But that's not really how DC is. And then over the last few years, the reality seems to have only caught up to them. And this, <laughs> this sounds like it is almost kind of pushing the needle, like, even further into the realm of absurdity. And in turn, real events are pushing pushing the needle of absurdity right into brain dead. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd be intrigued to know. I mean, this seems like, I haven't seen like uh, the ratings or anything like that. I, I wonder how much more ambitious a show like that could be in its next season when it has so much more stuff to kind of draw upon just given our political yeah. moment. So it's been fun. That's good. Yeah, I like it a lot. That's yeah. a nice summer surprise. Yeah. Um, I have a summer surprise yes. that I, that I want to run by you, Jeff. We've talked a lot about reality shows. On this show oh, before. No. Well, one show we've talked about quite a bit, which is not the show that I'm going to surprise you with, is Big Brother. Oh, okay. Which, uh, okay. <laughs> I, I am currently recapping. This is a pretty fun season. There's a lot to talk about with it. Another reality show I've been watching lately, I have been kind of fascinated by. Now, Jeff, let me hit you with this. Okay. <laughs> Imagine that there is a TV show okay. where essentially every main character is a woman who is either widowed or divorced in their early 50s to even early 60s, that show is set so firmly in that world that any person under the age of 30, who usually on television and movies is just the most important people on Earth, 
those people are kind of presented as like outsiders almost like, like the show itself seems to treat them as if they are kind of these strange curiosities wandering into the world that we know which is again the world of sort of women in their 50s and 60s all of whom seem to be kind of like living their own lives all of whom seem to be trapped up in, in their own dramas you're building me up to some show of great cultural good here Darren now let me hit you with this also Jeff what if this show which is again a reality show so who knows to what extent it it's, it's reality. What if the show starts to b- make it very clear, like, no, these are people who their lives have been drastically altered by being on this show. We we are now the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in action, and you watching them has radically changed the course of their life. Now, Jeff, Real Housewives of New York City, it's a show that's been around for a very long time now. <laughs> and it is very entertaining. Uh, I had not seen it in many, many seasons. I jumped back into this season. You know, much of the drama is fun. Much of it, I assume, is fake. Something happened on this last week's episode, Jeff, that I am still struggling with. I think it's one of the most interesting things I've seen in television in a very long time. Certainly in reality television, which hasn't really had the best time as far as cultural evolution goes. Let me set the stage. Luann, Countess Luann has just gotten engaged to a fellow by the name of Tom. She's very happy about it. Second marriage for her, first marriage for him. She's having all of her friends, slash the people who are on this reality show with her, over for a celebration on her friend's yacht. Now, Jeff, (laughs) what you don't know is two other stars of The Real Housewives of New York who've been invited to that have also had a romantic relationship with Tom, her fiancé. It's been a big plot line this season. Does Luann know this? Luann knows this. It's been brought to her attention. One of them, Sonia, was said to be a friends with benefits with Tom for 10 years, a a span that actually ended about a month before Luann got engaged to Tom. Another gal by the name of Ramona, delightful person, was (laughs) dating Tom. It's unclear how much. She says four or five times. Tom says one or two times. Who knows? They they live very active lives. (laughs) Now, you're already thinking to yourself, this is so crazy to me. This one guy has dated all these people, and they're all on this show. And then while they're at this engagement party, there's a moment when Ramona talks about the first time she met Tom, and the cameras cut to 2007 when they were filming The Real Housewives of New York, and you see the first meeting between Tom and Ramona. This is footage from nine years ago. I'm not sure if it was stuff that was left on the cutting room floor or if it aired the first time. But the show has now followed these people around long enough that they make references to major points in their life. And the show now has that. And you see them nine years earlier. It is an uncanny effect, Jeff. It is it, it is so strange because, and then of course... They could do flashback scenes now that they actually have recorded. Yes, yes, yes. And this is already happening earlier in the show because, you know, Bethany, who's the most famous person on the show, and kind of, you know, at times you kind of think she, she, she might be the only person who actually kind of knows what she's doing as far as being a, a reality show performer. There's a moment where she, earlier in this season, was talking about how she's become very successful. Her brand has become very successful. She now works out of a hip office where she's surrounded by, like, all of her employees. So (laughs) she can now talk about, you know, I started off, it was just me, and I was, you know, really just kind of doing things on my own. The show can now cut to footage of her from 2007 when she was, like, debasing herself for her job and, you know, going to supermarkets to sell things. There is a weird Michael Apted thing happening with, (laughs) with this show now that I find remarkable. 
there's always been this talk about when you, you know is reality shows are they kind of in decline scripted's coming back now which everyone's really happy about but there's something interesting now with shows like that that have lasted long enough that they can actually call upon their own internal history so I find that very interesting does that sound interesting to you at all or am I totally like barking up the wrong tree here <laughs> interesting in theory not interesting in terms of like as a, oh, yeah. as, a, oh, yeah. as a show you would actually watch definitely interesting in theory it is interesting to consider would these events have happened at all if there was no reality show? Yeah, right. And the answer very clearly now is no. I mean, yeah. like, which which is also fascinating. And all of their lives have changed so much since the show started. You know, it suddenly brings us uh, semi full circle to White Rose and alternate realities. We're, we're talking about this, and I'm thinking like, what would Luann's life be like if this show? had never entered her life and now is changing her life and is now becoming her life. That is a very real thing. Yes, there's an interesting shift that is happening. Bravo reality shows are just very fun and very light and they're they're made very well, but there's something interesting that goes beyond that when you get into the phase of like, we are now seeing the radical changes in these people as time passes. And you know, some of them, some of them, their faces seem to change. Who knows, who knows why? Some of the, you know, there's, there's something interesting happening there. To borrow from White Rose, Clearly, the contemplation moves you deeply. It moves me deeply. Let's finish up here, Jeff, because I want to return to another show that we've talked about before and dropped off on. Preacher. Yeah. Season one. Over. Finale. What happened? Preacher did what most of us either saw early or became convinced that it was doing, uh, which is that its uh, adaptation strategy was of the comics was to essentially create a massive prologue for the events that are depicted at the beginning of the comic. So really what Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg did was create a story, taking the characters, borrowing against some elements from later in the series, and created an original story that neatly fits in the two pages or 22 pages or whatever that may have existed but don't before the first issue of the comic book. So yeah, like the comic book uh, introduced us to uh, Jesse and Tulip and Cassidy and uh, they've already met. They're in a diner. They're reflecting a little bit on the events that brought them here of the mysterious event that happened to Jesse becomes imbued with the Genesis uh, entity. And then in that act of being imbued, he ends up destroying his town and setting in the motion that puts him on the road to go find a god that has apparently abandoned his heaven. And he teams up with Cassidy and Tulip. That ultimately is where we left off at the end of Preacher. In this case, what the adaptation strategy did was that they had Jesse, as we know, as we've talked about, as we've seen earlier in the season, imbued with this power. But then he spends some time in his town and he gets to understand the power and he understands what he means and he tries to save the soul of the town. And it ultimately leads to a pretty clever scene, actually, I have to say, like in the finale where they get the angels phone the hotline to heaven and try to call down God and have a conversation with him. And so Jesse and all the characters in the town are having a conversation with what they think is God, but turns out to be angels masquerading as God because <laughs> God is gone. And it's in this fashion that God, that Jesse now learns that God is gone. But what, what happens is, is that the emotional and spiritual response to this town, we think to this revelation that God is essentially abandoned creation is one of complete despair. So these people that were already kind of pissed off at God as, as it was and not necessarily living very faithful lives, the town just completely collapses. Like kids turn into killers, people abandon their faith. 
Um, someone who's manning the plant, the meat plant, falls asleep on the job during some S&M sex. Methane ends up escaping and the town blows up. <laughs> so, and so in the comic where the town blew up, Anvil blew up because as a result of the interaction between the Genesis thing and, and, and Jesse, here the town blows up as a result of essentially despairing the absence of God. And that becomes now the motivation for Jesse then. That fuels the motivation for Jesse to hit the road with Tulip and Cassidy to go search for God. And and, and now, presumably, um, obviously, the, I'm sure that the show will take more kind of like inventive uh, approaches to adaptation. But the story as we know it, if you read the comics, has commenced. Yeah, and it was interesting. I mean, I was briefly lucky enough to talk to a lot of the cast of Preacher at Comic-Con and to Garth Ennis, who I, I truly consider to be just one of the great comic book people of the last 20 years. One thing he said to me was that going forward, the show may follow the comic a little more closely. This has been this really interesting adaptation that I, I wish I could have enjoyed more. But it's this really interesting thing, and I can't even think of something to compare it to, where they decided we need to do a bit of an origin and a bit of a zoom in. As you said exactly, like, we need to kind of zoom in between panels here, almost, and tell this much longer story. And while doing that, they took, fascinatingly, they took a, a elements of a later plot line in Preacher that don't really have much to do with anything. I mean, the Salvation plot line is specifically a kind of tangent away from the main action, and kind of just said, we're going to just bring a lot of this stuff in and bring the general atmosphere of this. And I, I like all that in theory, and I also really like the idea of Jesse's not just some badass who's setting off to do this because he knows that that's what's right. And, you know, this town is not just collateral damage. Love all that in theory. This still feels a lot to be like an origin story that we didn't quite need. <laughs> yeah. But you know what I think that they proved? I think they proved in theory that you needed a different beginning to this adaptation. I think that all of uh, the comic book fans out there who thought that you could just kind of begin this com this story the way the comic begins are fooling themselves and I think are not remembering the comic correctly. And if you think about what the comic had to do storytelling wise to get going and then what it had to do as it progressed for the sake of character development, you realize that maybe this doesn't necessarily work for the, the television show. I think that it serves the, the show's interest to establish these characters and to lay out the philosophy of it all and taking a patient approach to setting up its premise. The irony is that, though, is that we got a season of television that was much longer and flabbier than it needed to be. This is still a show that each week there would be one thing where I would right. say, that's really cool. That's, sometimes it was filmmaking. filmmaking was massively entertaining. Yeah, I think Dominic Cooper is a very good actor who was stuck in a role that was interesting in theory, but not very coherently written. And for me, what happened as the season progressed is that a conflict occurred in the writing between that character idea of Jesse as being genuinely interested in saving the soul of his town, competing with the outrageousness of the story and kind of what they want Jesse to be in any given moment, 
you know, like knocking heads, like killing yeah, people and yeah, stuff like, like that. Fighting, fighting the fake Confederate soldiers in the first episode, you know, to, to go from that to him being more sincere. I mean, no, it, it kind that, of subverted whatever character they wanted to have. Yeah. I think that by the end, even Cooper, maybe as an actor, kind of gave up on trying to like have Jesse make any sense. So just was just playing the absurd comedy of it all. Yeah. So that when we finally get to the end and Jesse is now beholds the truth of his situation, he understands what this inner, this force is inside him and that God has gone MIA and he's pissed off about it. We get a Jesse at the end of the finale that is a little bit more focused, a little bit more active, pissed off. We get more of the Jesse of the comic. I think we'll get a better performance from yeah, Cooper next year so. and a better Jesse too. And I'm not tired of it yet. In fact, I'm even more engaged by its premise. That's, that's I, I, I the agree. show's in really good shape to do. I have a better season too. I left that season finale thinking like, I'm glad that's done with because the fun stuff can start now, which yeah. is I think always a good thing to feel about a show at this point. Jeff, we've talked so much about TV. People want to know more about TV. They can certainly follow you on Twitter at EW Doc Jensen. So much television out there and right check now. Check in with me also like uh, uh, hopefully Tuesday or Wednesday because I have a noodle cooking new Mr. Robot theory for you that oh! I'm going to try to get out there. New so, theory. Yes. New yes. theory. New theory. New theory.